Our text this morning is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 16. And as we read it, realize that we're dropping in on the middle of a 13-chapter-long battle that Paul has been fighting. Up to this point in the second letter to the Corinthians, the apostle has been engaged in the undesirable and unseemly work of self-vindication. You can understand if I said that that's unseemly to have to do. That's what Paul's having to do. That's what this letter is largely about. He's been having to defend defend his character and his ministry against a whole host of false accusations, accusations leveled at him by self-important, ambitious men who he sarcastically refers to as super-apostles. These men were jockeying for position and influence in the church in order to draw the Corinthians away from Paul and after themselves. They're trying to steal the church from Paul, a church that Paul planted. And so he begins his letter to the Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. This is to remind the Corinthians that he is not a self-appointed, self-made man. Paul is God's man. And you can't turn your back on God's man without turning your back on God. This fight, Paul knows, is not about him. It's about God. And so in this tug of war between the super apostles and God's man, Paul, are souls who hang in the balance. Their souls are at stake. How is Paul being discredited? Well, for one thing, the super apostles didn't find him a particularly impressive or powerful man. In his letters, he comes across as strong and confident, well-spoken. But in person, Paul's speaking, is, his preaching is it's really not up to snuff. It's not particularly impressive. There's no really quotable nuggets. You know, there's no beautiful hand gestures. No fancy business. It's kind of boring, really. And you know, I, I, I'm surprised. I've, I would have expected more. Or at other times, they'd say something like this. Didn't Paul promise in his last letter that he was going to come visit us? It's been a long time since we've heard anything from him. And it's funny. I really would have thought he'd be more dependable than that. But if they wanted to be really nasty, they'd say this. Of course, Paul calls himself an apostle, but you you do realize that as far as we know, he never was actually with Jesus face to face, which I think is something that can be said of all the other apostles, right? And so there's this tug of war being fought over the hearts and minds, the affections of the church at Corinth. On one side are men who take pride in appearance and not in heart, as Paul says earlier in this chapter, who measure their own ministries and others by earthly standards. These are men of wealth and power and connections and eloquence and education and good hair and polished smiles. And on the other side, there's poor, tireless, courageous, patient, impoverished, watchful, 
discerning, humble, hated, bloody, loving Paul. Who, by his own admission, had only one weapon in his arsenal. But what a weapon. Paul had the gospel of Jesus Christ entrusted to him by Jesus himself. And writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul courageously wielded that gospel, fighting passionately in defense of imperiled souls, both those of the Corinthian church and by the providence and goodness of God in defense of our souls today. Would you please follow along with me as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. We'll read that many verses, but we'll focus this morning particularly on the first two, 16 and 17. Paul says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, this is your word. These are the words of life. And Father, we thank you for them and ask humbly that your Holy Spirit would make them clear to us, that we would receive from them what we need this morning to find in you satisfaction and eternal rest and peace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now remember how I said that Paul had just one weapon in his arsenal, the gospel. Well, this is especially evident in this passage. In these few verses, we have one of the most direct, the most glorious, the most powerful, the most succinct presentations of the gospel in all scripture. This is that moment in the fight when everything pauses for just a moment and the light shines just right from the sky. When the knight finally draws his sword and you see it there in all its glory and power the embodiment of everything that's good and right and true. And it's so sharp that as it comes out of the sheath, it, it, it cuts through the air. This is like that moment. Paul here has taken the sword of the Spirit and he's finally drawn it out of the sheath. It's, it's been there all along, but you know how like in, in battles, often at the beginning, they just kind of spar. They'll either use their fists or they'll use the sword but it'll be in the sheath and they'll just kind of block blows, you know. Now it comes out. Why does it come out? It's come out to do what it was destined to do from all eternity. It's come out to kill sin. That's what the gospel does. 
It's perfectly designed to combat, overcome, and utterly destroy our sin. So what sin is Paul attacking here? Look at verse 16. He writes, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. The sin that Paul is addressing is bound up in that phrase, according to the flesh. What does he mean by that? Paul uses that word flesh, sarx in Greek, a lot. Sometimes he just means flesh, your physical body, skin and bone. But more often than not, Paul uses sarx to point to deeper spiritual realities, to the great war between man's sinful nature, the old man, and the redeemed nature in Christ, our new man, to the struggle between worldliness and godliness, the flesh versus the spirit. This is what he refers to here. He's saying that from now on, we do not recognize or evaluate or measure one another by the standards and values of this world. No longer do we see from a worldly perspective. Now, admittedly, yes, there was a time when we did. There was a time when even we judged Jesus Christ by those standards. We saw him as a poor, uneducated, unattractive, inconsequential nobody. And we completely disregarded him, totally wrote him off. We thought he was just another offensive, controversial, blasphemous zealot, upsetting the people and threatening our whole way of life. You'll recall that I even devoted my life to tracking down his followers and putting them to death when I could. And according to all worldly wisdom, I was right to do so. But something now has changed. Something radical has happened to us. Once we evaluated men by their outward appearance, once we judged success by dollar signs and prestige and numbers, once we marched in perfect lockstep with the assumptions and ideas and ideals of this world, We hung on all the latest words of the philosophers and the scientists and the scholars. We were impressed by degrees and personalities. We were blown here and there by every wind of fashion. We lived in complete bondage to the principles of this world. But something has radically changed. From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Why is Paul making that point? Remember, he's got the sword of the Spirit unsheathed, poised, ready to strike. Ready to thrust it right into the heart of sin. Why is he saying this? From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. What is Paul doing? Paul is naming his enemy. What is it to recognize according to the flesh? What is it to evaluate 
and to judge and to measure and to process and to think, to understand, to see according to the flesh. It is none other than to be worldly-minded. And worldly-mindedness, as we will see, stands completely in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. James 4.4 Whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Paul is naming his enemy, sizing him up, identifying him. Worldliness is a very serious opponent to godliness. It's the arch enemy of the gospel. We see the worldly-mindedness of the Corinthians and how easily they were impressed by the flashy, clean, smooth, talking, popular, well-thought-of super-apostles. And consequently, how little they esteemed God's man, Paul. Where do we see worldliness in our church? In ourselves? The scriptures give us a number of indicators that point to the existence of worldly-mindedness in a church. But I think a good summary of these, a good rule of thumb, is this. We find worldly-mindedness wherever we see lack of faith. Where do we see lack of faith in this church? What about how we use our money? What does your checkbook say about your faith? I got my giving statement this last week. I didn't see a lot of faith there. I saw an almost, almost kind of sort of truthful amount of tithing. But I didn't see faith. And then I look at how God provided for our church over this past year, and I'm tempted to think it must just be me that lacks faith with my money. But I don't think that's actually what's happening. I think what's happening is that there are about 50% of us who believe in God's generous provision, who have begun selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all, as anyone might have need, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And then I think there's another 50% of us of which I'm afraid I am one who are very happy that those people exist. Truth be told, I bet I would not even tithe if I didn't know somebody was going to prepare a giving statement for me and see, and that a number was not going to pass in front of somebody's eye, an objective statement, and that my salary wasn't going to be posted on the screen and that that person wasn't going to know Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. 
How many areas of our lives could this be an indictment of? Have any of you fathers found your mealtime prayers lifeless, uninspired, and empty lately? Could it be due to the fact that those were some of the only moments of prayer and meditation in your day? How many of us, if we were honest, would not rather skip that part of the meal and would if we thought our wives would let us get away with it? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. That's the story of my life. How do we approach politics? I will lift up my eyes unto the drudge report. From whence shall my help come? My help is in Obama's falling approval ratings. Who they used to say made heaven and earth. Ha ha. Some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we, we trust in the election of Scott Brown. Because he's our best hope for stopping this blasted health bill. No, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence shall my help come. My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. How worldly we are when we approach politics, when we think of our nation, when we think of what God is doing and will do and wants to do in our country. And how he's going to do it. How about, and I think this is a biggie, how about evangelism? God's not going to use me to convert anybody. I'm timid and I'm shy. I fumble all over myself anytime I try to speak about the Lord. I I mean, God uses people like... Stephen Baker, Michael Foster, yeah, yes. God uses people like Michael Foster. You know, brave, confident, smooth, or not smooth talking, but easy talking people. (laughs) People who talk easily. Michael's anything but a smooth talker. But he does talk easily, you know? Just comes natural to him. God uses people like Michael Foster. Maybe that's not you, though. Maybe you think, God's going to use the Christmas concert to save people. He's not going to use my small group. My small group, the people in my small group are, are so lame, you know. God doesn't use people like that to convert my cool friends and, and there's children everywhere, and they're always disrupting the discussion. If they came, they wouldn't even hear the gospel. God couldn't use my small group to convert anybody. Some of us, I'm afraid, though, tend to think in this way, which is much worse than the previous two. God's not going to use Michael Foster. God's not going to use Mick Bushbacher. God's not going to use Stephen Baker, Tim Bailey. 
God's going to use me. See, I know how to relate to people. I know how to, to touch people. I know how to listen in just the right way. I know I've read some books now about this, and I don't think they get it. God's going to use me. Listen, all such things, and we could go on and on and on, all such things are the fruit of worldly-mindedness. And when Paul speaks to the worldly-mindedness of the Corinthians and their evaluation of men, realize that he is also speaking to our worldly-mindedness. He's speaking to you and me. In verse 16, Paul has identified his opponent, worldly-mindedness. He's drawn his sword, and in verse 17, with very, very great skill and courage and zeal, he drives the blade of the gospel home with all his might, with the intent of putting this awful sin of worldly-mindedness to death. He says, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, there are two very important aspects to this which we need to understand if we're going to understand that Paul is even using a sword, that this sword has an edge to it, and that it's going to be at all useful to us. Two aspects to this, to this verse. First is this. What does it mean to be in Christ? And the second, how is it that in Christ... We are made new. What are the old things that pass away and what are the new things that come? Where do they come from? Let's look first at what it means to be in Christ. The Holy Spirit has given us a number of very vivid depictions of what it means to be in Christ. I'll just remind us of a few. Genesis chapter 3, the account of Adam's fall. Eve has listened to the deception of the serpent. She's eaten of the fruit of the tree, which God instructed her not to eat. She's given it to her husband Adam, and he's eaten too. And it says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And God goes on to curse the serpent, and curse the woman, and curse the man, and the whole earth because of the sin. And then it says this, verse 21. 
Remarkable verse. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of how God has made provision for man's sin in the death of his son, Jesus. Man sinned and God killed an animal. And we see depicted there the first glimpses of the need for blood sacrifice, for a substitutionary atonement. That Christ would have to die to make satisfaction for our sin. God took the skins of the animals and made clothing for Adam and Eve to cover the shame of their nakedness. And and we see depicted the imputation of Christ's righteousness. God covering the shame of shame of sin, clothing us in the righteousness of Christ and seeing us forever after as righteous in him. Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. God clothing Adam and Eve in the skins of animals is a powerful image of what it is for Christians to be clothed in the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. We see a second depiction of what it means to be in Christ in Genesis 6, the account of Noah and the ark. Verse 5 of chapter 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And what happened? God told Noah, The rain is coming. Build an ark. And he gave him instructions, very precise instructions of how to build the ark. He built it. He went in with his family and two of every kind of animal. And he was saved from the terrible, awesome judgment of God. Jesus Christ, for the believer, is the ark. In him we're saved from God's wrath. Here's a final and even greater picture of what it means to be in Christ. The account of Israel and Egypt, Exodus 12. You'll recall that God sent ten catastrophic plagues on the Egyptians to judge them for not letting his chosen people leave when Moses petitioned Pharaoh. In the tenth plague, you'll remember God sent his death angel at night to kill all the Egyptian firstborn. The Israelite firstborn were at risk, too, of being slain. But God made provision for them. God said to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. 
You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat of the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all in water, but rather roasted with fire. Both its head and its legs, along with its entrails, eat the whole thing. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat of it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and where I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." The Israelites were supposed to remain indoors. And the blood of the lamb, the unblemished, unspotted lamb, was to mark their doors. And by this sign, they were saved from God's judgment on Egypt. It was said of Jesus, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And in Romans 3, that because of the blood of Christ, God passes over the sins of those who trust in him. Christ is the lamb that was slain, whose blood stands between Christians and the wrath of God. These are some of the most vivid pictures that we have in Scripture of what it means to be in Christ. But how do we come to be in Christ? Christ. The scriptures tell us that it is by faith, by believing. By believing what? By believing that God loved the world. That he sent his son Jesus into the world in the form of a man, not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That Jesus willingly gave his life as a ransom for many. That in his death on the cross, he paid the full penalty for your sin once and for all. It is by believing that his blood was poured out to wash you from your sins. That Christ's righteousness has now become for you a holy garment of salvation. That Jesus Christ has reconciled you to the Father. That he's canceled the record of debt. The decrees that condemn you. He's canceled them. That the Father in Christ Jesus welcomes you into his presence with open arms. Receives you as he would his own son. That in Christ you are righteous. It is by believing that you are washed, that you are forgiven. It is by believing that God loves you. 
That's how you come to be in Christ. It's easy. You believe what God has said. And when you come to Christ by faith and are found in him, not having a righteousness of your own, but having put on the garment of his salvation, something miraculous happens. Something completely amazing happens. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Christ sets you free from the curse of sin. He sets you free from your bondage to your lusts. He cuts the heavy burden of sin from your shoulders. He takes your old habits, your old ways of thinking, the tether that keeps you tied to the cares of this world, and he cuts it free. He cuts you free. He makes you a new creature. Now listen closely. This is the most important thing. Remember how I made such a big deal about the gospel being a weapon, a sword, and how Paul is using it here to destroy sin. I want to draw your attention to the very moment in this passage that is the sharpest. The place in this passage where the knife enters the wound where it cuts the deepest. Paul uses a word in this passage that, that transforms everything around it into a two-edged sword that drives the gospel home with deadly force. There's a little word here which is very troubling to me. A word which makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Anybody know what the word is? If. Paul says if. Verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Follow Paul's logic backwards, and you'll see why that little word if is so disturbing. If the old things have not passed away, and the new things have not come, then you are not a new creature. And if you are not a new creature, you are not in Christ. Very troubling. If there is nothing in you but a common, everyday, worldly outlook, if the changes others think they've noticed in you are nothing but manufactured self-engineered, skin-deep changes, if they're nothing but pretense to get along in the world, to have a little bit of a better life, a little bit more peace. If there is not an ordering principle of godliness in your mind which has transformed the way you process and think and interpret all of life, if you find that you think and act and talk basically like everybody around you, if you find 
that you complain and fear and love and spend your time and spend your money and expend your energy in basically normal ways. If you live in bondage to your lusts and your appetites, if you find that you love the things of this world more than the things of God, if you find that your heart is tethered to the here and now, if the cares of this world have not grown strangely dim, if there is no faith in you, then the old things have not passed away and the new things have not come. Do you see that? And you are not a new creature. And if you are not a new creature, I tell you that you are not in Christ. And if you are not in Christ... if you're not dressed in his righteousness by faith, (sighs) there are hard things to say. When God comes looking for you like he came looking for Adam, you're naked. Every last sin that you have ever committed is on full display before a scrupulous, meticulous, exacting, holy judge. When God decides that it's finally time to judge this world, unlike righteous Noah, you will be outside the ark, drowning in a sea of God's judgment. When the death angel comes, if you are not in the house marked by the blood of the pure, (coughs) unblemished lamb, then you will meet the same fate as the Egyptian firstborn. You will be slain. And the blood of those who will be slain, how high is it, Stephen? Up to the horse's bridle. And if you think that you're safe and off the hook because you're a member of a church... Remember that Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to you and to me, and he says, if. It's a very disturbing little word. This ought to make us tremble, it ought to make us examine ourselves. We must examine ourselves. Paul has wielded the sword of the Spirit faithfully. It's been driven home. It has removed any self-righteous leg we thought we had to stand on. 
has divided the whole world into two categories, in Christ and out of Christ. Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here I stand this morning. I'm not Paul, but I'm an ambassador for Christ. I stand here on behalf of Christ, and I beg you, be reconciled to God. Remember, it's easy. Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Be reconciled to God. And God will make you a new creature. God is greater than your heart. He's greater than your sin. The old things, the cares of this world, the things of this world, the unpoetic, materialistic, dull ways of thinking that you see all around you, the unimaginative life, the life that is just like so-and-so says and so so-and-so must be right, and so so so-and-so must be the master of my destiny (laughs) because so-and-so has a degree, you know? (laughs) God will make all things, all the old things, all the old habits, all the old mindsets, all the old lusts, he'll make them pass away And he will make all things new. And it will be wonderful. It will be wonderful. You'll find yourself clothed in pure, white, indestructible garments of salvation. You'll be clothed in the righteousness made for you by God. Clothes made for you by God. And you will be given a new heart and a new mind. And you will find that you have the ability to love and to obey, to be joyful, content. Who around you is content? Have you seen anybody content in this world? Doesn't it sound nice? Wouldn't you like to be content? In Christ you will be a new creature. I beg you, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Have faith and believe and you will become a new creature. Let's pray.